Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas on the Rebellions of 1837. It is the summer of 1837. Louis-Joseph Papineau is addressing a rally in the village of Saint-Scolastique. His party, the Patriote, is engaged in a life-and-death struggle with the British for control of the destiny of Lower Canada. The British Parliament has stolen your land and has given them to swindlers and traitors. Now, they threaten to steal your money. For whom? For a squalling pack of corrupt officials. Don't give them any money to steal. Vive la liberté! The Patriot agitation is the culmination of years of struggle. Lower Canada is a British colony. Its government belongs to the British governor and the council he appoints. The Patriot want an elected government. They are liberals who believe in democratic institutions. They are nationalists who fear that without control of the government, they will eventually be assimilated by the English. And they are a rising middle class who want access to power and positions. The British will not grant their demands. Stalemate, and eventually, war. The poorly equipped and poorly trained Patriot prove no match for British regulars. They lose hard-fought battles at Saint-Charles and Saint-Eustache. A Patriot invasion mounted from the United States in 1838 also fails. And in early 1839, 12 men convicted of treason stand on the gallows in front of the Montreal jail. One of them, the Chevalier de Lorimier, leaves behind what he calls his political testament. I have only a few hours to live, and I have sought to divide them between my duty to religion and that due to my compatriots. For them I die on the gallows the infamous death of murderer. For them I leave behind my young children and my wife alone. For them I die with the cry on my lips, Vive la liberté! Vive l'indépendance! Tonight on Ideas, we present the final program in David Cayley's series on the rebellions of 1837. In early 1836, in the homes of the British merchants of Montreal, there was mounting alarm. The leader of the Patriot, Louis-Joseph Papineau, had openly declared himself in favor of a republican form of government. The government at Quebec was paralyzed. The Montrealers decided that they must take things into their own hands. They formed themselves into a paramilitary society called the Doric Club and published a manifesto. If we are deserted by the British government and the British people, then rather than submit to the degradation of being subjects of a French-Canadian republic, we are determined by our own right arms to work out our deliverance. We are ready to pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. The manifesto of the Doric Club was an early sign of the coming confrontation between the supporters of the British government and the Patriot. In 1834, 
the Patriot majority in the House of Assembly had sent to England 92 resolutions detailing their grievances against the government. The colonial office had responded by appointing a commission of inquiry to be headed by a new governor, Lord Gosford. Gosford arrived, according to a contemporary, with 10 tons of claret, a proportional quantity of champagne and sherry, and the aim of accommodating the Patriot as far as the colony's constitution allowed. Lower Canada's British population were skeptical. Dr. Henry, a surgeon with one of the British regiments at Quebec, published an open letter warning Gosford of his poor prospects. My lord, I fear that you are expending political courtesies and private convivialities in vain. There is one fatal and insuperable obstacle in your way. There is one man, Papineau, whom you cannot convert because he is unconvertible. By a wrong-headed and melancholy alchemy, he will transmute every public concession into a demand for more, whilst his disordered moral palate, beneath the blandest smile and the softest language, will turn your burgundy into vinegar. Gosford's commission was too little, too late. Its fate was sealed when the Lieutenant Governor of Upper Canada, the tactless Sir Francis Bond Head, released the commission's instructions from the colonial office. Soon the Patriot knew that Gosford was not empowered to grant the only thing that would satisfy them, responsible government. Then, in the early spring of 1837, came the coup de grace. Lord John Russell introduced into the British Parliament ten resolutions on Lower Canada, a belated response to the Patriot's 92 resolutions. The Russell resolutions authorized the government of Lower Canada to spend money without the consent of the Assembly. The Patriot in the Assembly had been refusing to pay the government's expenses in order to enforce their demands. Now their only legal weapon had been taken out of their hands. The province erupted. Edmund Bailey O'Callaghan, a close associate of Papineau's and the editor of The Vindicator, boomed out the Patriot's defiance. The feeling created throughout this district by Lord John Russell's infamous resolutions is one of unmixed indignation. They are met everywhere with stubborn determination to resist any and every attempt to enslave the country. Russell may order his deputy, Gosford, to plunder our public chest, but this will not legalize the plunder. Henceforth, there must be no peace in the province, no quarter for the plunderer. Agitate! 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 Destroy the revenue! Denounce the oppressors! Everything is lawful when the fundamental liberties are in danger! Throughout the spring and summer of 1837, the tempo of agitation steadily increased in the Montreal district where the strength of the Patriot was centered. In June, at Saint-Scholastique, Papineau called for a boycott of British imports, part of O'Callaghan's call for the Patriot to destroy the revenue, since import duties were the main support of the government. A mass rally in Montreal during the same month attracted 4,000 people. This encouraged the Patriot to inaugurate a paramilitary society of their own, the Fils de la Liberté. Like the Doric Club, they also announced their existence with a manifesto. A glorious destiny awaits the young men of these colonies. Our fathers have passed a life of vexation 
in daily struggles against every degree of despotism. As they pass from the world, they leave an inheritance improved by their patriotic sacrifices. To us, they commit the noble duty of carrying onward their proud designs, which in our day must emancipate our beloved country from all authority except that of the bold democracy residing within its bosom. Mass rallies continued throughout the summer and fall, despite a proclamation by Governor Gosford in June outlawing them. The Patriot even celebrated the 4th of July with a rally in the border town of Stansted. An American militia band played Yankee Doodle while the Patriot marched under their red, white, and green flag. Every new device was hailed, O'Callaghan told the readers of The Vindicator, especially those that awoke recollections of the American Revolution. The culmination of the Patriots' mass mobilization came on October 23rd with what was called the Assembly of the Six Counties at Saint-Charles. A temporary hustings was built in a meadow adjacent to the village. A company of militia stood by and fired a volley after the passing of each resolution. A wooden liberty pole was erected in honor of Papineau and each man put his hand to it and swore to conquer or die for his country. Then Papineau addressed the crowd. The Russell resolutions are a foul stain. The people should not and will not submit to them. The people must transmit their just rights to their posterity, even though it cost them their property and their lives to do so. We are fighting the old enemies of the country, the governor, the two consuls, the judges, and the bulk of the officials whom your representatives have long denounced as forming a corrupt faction hostile to the rights of the people. This faction is still quite as eager to do harm, but it no longer has the same power to do it. It is still the savage beast ready to bite and to tear its prey. But it can now only roar and howl, for you have drawn its fangs. Times have changed for these people. In 1810, Governor Craig cast your representatives into prison. The people laughed at him and at the royal proclamations, mordements and sermons designed to strike terror into the people. Today, in order to shelter his courtiers from the punishment justly inflicted on them by the assembly, the governor is compelled to show himself shedding tears in order to excite pity. He has become humble and caressing in order to deceive, but his artifices are worn out. He can no longer purchase 
traitors. Patriots are no longer to be deceived. The day after the meeting at Saint-Charles, the Bishop of Montreal, Jean-Jacques Lartigue, denounced the increasingly violent tone of the Patriot agitation. He issued amendment, a pastoral letter to be read from every pulpit in the diocese. In Chambly, it was read by his coadjutor bishop, Ignace Bourget. This is what the sacred scriptures teach you about the duty of a Catholic towards the civil power established and constituted in each state. Let every soul, says Saint Paul, be subject to the higher powers, for there is no power but from God. Therefore, he that resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist purchase to themselves damnation. Did you ever seriously reflect on the horrors of a civil war? Did you ever represent to yourselves your towns and your hamlets deluged with blood, the innocent and the guilty carried off by the same tide of calamity and woe? Did you ever reflect on what experience teaches that almost without exception, Every popular revolution is a work of blood. Bourget's reading of the Mondement was greeted with defiance by the congregation at Chambly. As he left the church, he was jostled and insulted. In later years, the patriot leaders sometimes blamed the clergy for their defeat. But historian Alan Greer thinks that the behavior of the parishioners of Chambly is an instance of how little influence Lartigue's Mondement actually had. Judging by the way people acted in relation to church's directives in the past, I don't think they would have been unduly influenced. In, at the time of the American Revolution, for example, Bishop uh, Briand, I believe it was, told everybody to, that it was their duty as good Catholics to come to the aid of the British government and fight against the invading Americans. Very few did. They didn't consider themselves bad Catholics. They didn't say, we don't want a bishop. They just ignored those directives that they considered political and therefore outside the scope of the bishop's proper authority. They had a very clear idea, I would say, of, of what a bishop can and cannot tell you to do that didn't coincide with the bishops. The Patriot Party had begun as an essentially middle-class parliamentary grouping. By the fall of 1837, it had become a mass movement. The difference was the active participation of the habitants, the farmers who made up the mass of the population. In 1837, they were coming off a series of bad harvests which had led to widespread hardship. C.E. Casgrain described the situation at Rivière Ouelle. We are here in a state of alarming poverty. The needs are such that I fear we will not be able to provide sufficient for the winter 
for all the poor who grieve us and sear our souls with their stories of hardship. The harvest has been so poor that a good half of the habitants will not have enough for themselves. Most of these are in debt and without further credit. The rest are little better in consequence of debts contracted in hope of good harvests which have been lacking for several years. It is a sad state of affairs. 1836 and 1837 were hard, lean years in Lower Canada, and the hard times were compounded for all classes by tight credit, the result of an international financial collapse in 1836. But poverty by itself doesn't explain the rebellion, because it wasn't the poorest districts which rebelled. It was the relatively prosperous Montreal district. Here, the main issue seems to have been land. The lands of old Quebec had originally been divided into seigneuries. All land was assigned to a seigneur, or overlord, and he granted it to settlers in exchange for the payment of rents and other dues. This modified feudal system had worked well enough so long as rents remained fair and there were new lands to grant. But by the 1830s, things had changed. Many of the seigneuries were now in the hands of the English rather than the old French nobles. The good lands in the Montreal district had all been granted, and the new unsettled lands in the eastern townships had been granted en bloc to the British American Land Company, which was viewed by the Patriot as a vast boondoggle designed to deprive French Canadians of their patrimony. The habitants wanted land, and it was this, says historian Murray Greenwood, which brought them into the Patriot movement. The only political view that could be put across to the habitants was this. You've got to kick the Brits out, because otherwise you're going to go on not having land for your sons. And this was a moral obligation for them to get lands for their sons, and they couldn't do it. Montreal District, eh? had about 11% of the um, arable land occupied at the conquest. 1837, 80%. And the rest, most of it, was being held off the uh, market for speculative purposes. They couldn't find their son's land. Their whole moral being was being undermined. So naturally, they were damn angry. And they could be appealed to on, on any number of bases. But they wanted to abolish the seigneurial system and get the land. The seigneurial system was the issue which would eventually split the Patriot. At first, they had reflexively defended this system against the attacks of the British merchants, who had been lobbying to have it abolished ever since the conquest. But now, the majority of the habitants and the more liberal wing of the Patriot also wanted the system abolished, while the more conservative continued to defend it as part of French Canada's inheritance. The question, at bottom, was whether the Patriot were seeking independence in order to preserve the traditional society or to transform it. So far, their leader, Louis-Joseph Papineau, himself a seigneur, had successfully straddled this contradiction. Soon, he would be forced to decide. In the summer of 1837, the governor began to revoke the public offices held by anyone involved in the Patriot agitation, usually as justices of the peace or officers of the militia. Those sympathetic to the Patriot who were not fired resigned. This started a campaign, which continued through the fall, to force the resignations of those who retained their offices. The campaign quickly took on ethnic overtones 
and the English office holders reported that they were being harassed simply because they were English. But the Patriot were not an exclusively French-Canadian party. Among their leaders were Edmund O'Callaghan, Robert and Wilfred Nelson, Thomas Storrow Brown, and others. And Alan Greer thinks that the polarization was primarily political rather than ethnic. The county of Two Mountains, north of Montreal, was a site of some of the most uh, acute conflict in 1837. And it was acute because it was an area where English and French Canadian settlers were in something like roughly equivalent numbers in different sections of the county. Now, the Patriots went on a a bit of a campaign of coercion by intimidating people, chopping down their their fences at night, cutting the uh, manes and tails off their horses and other kinds of harassment. Now, it's reported in the English press of Montreal that this is a campaign against British settlers, per se, and it's portrayed as kind of pure racial, the expression of pure racial animosity. But if you look closely at what happened and what was reported, all was... Uh, the Patriots made clear that they were doing this in order to try and coerce people into joining them. They would always start out by saying, join us. Then they would start harassing people. Now, their tactics are not necessarily attractive, but the fact that they're trying to coerce people into joining them makes it clear that uh, it was their political loyalties rather than the language that they spoke that was at issue. The form the harassment took was called a charivari, a ritual traditionally employed against ill-assorted newlyweds. A masked crowd playing rough music on pots, pans, horns, and what have you, appeared at night at the home of the couple whose liaison had attracted suspicion, a young man and a rich widow, say, and pestered them until they had exacted payment of a fine. In 1837, this ritual was ingeniously adapted to political purposes, Dudley Flowers was one of the victims. I'm a lieutenant in the militia. On the 27th day of October last, in the afternoon, a number of persons came to my house and demanded my commission, to which I made answer that I'd give it up to none but the governor of the province. Upon this, they went away. About 11 o'clock in the night of the same day, the same persons returned. They began yelling in the most frightful manner, they threw stones at my house and broke the greatest part of my windows. A large stone passed very near one of my children and would have killed him if it had struck him. Julien Gagnon, who had seen my barn full of oats when he came in the daytime, told me that I should not have to thresh them unless I gave up my commission and also said that my grain, my house, and outhouses would be burnt. On the night of the following day, it might have been around 10 o'clock, a masked mob composed of about 30 or 40 persons, attacked my house in a similar manner and with the same threats as on the former occasions, but if possible with much more violence, beating kettles and pans, blowing horns, calling me a rebel, saying it would be the last time they would come as they would finish me in half an hour. They had in a short time with stones and other missiles broken in part of the roof of my house and boasted that it would soon be demolished. Fearing that such must inevitably be the case, I opened the door and told them that if four or five of their party would come in and give their names, I'd give them up my commission. Four or five of them did come in, disguised in the most hideous manner, but refused to give their names. 
Finding that my life was actually in danger if I refused to comply with their requests, I handed them my commission. Dudley Flowers may not have been in as much danger as he supposed. Alan Greer has made a study of these political cherry varies, and he thinks that though some damage was done, usually broken windows, the ritual was largely theatrical. It limited violence as well as expressing it. The victims of Cheriveri, of these political Cheriveris, thought their lives were in danger, and that was the whole point. They thought they were about to have their houses burned down and to be killed. None of them ever wa was killed, or n and none of the houses were ever burned down. But the whole theatrical paraphernalia of the traditional folkloric ri ritual was brought to bear in such a way as to convince them that they were in danger and that they had to surrender. There were dozens of these Cheriveris in the district of Montreal in October. September, October, November 1837. They worked very well, very effectively, to the point where by November there were virtually no constituted representatives of the government in the countryside of the District of Montreal. The District of Montreal is not effectively part of the British Empire anymore. That's why you have battles. I mean, that's the main reason why there is overt war in November of 1837, because essentially the government has to send in troops to reassert its sovereignty over this territory, which is effectively operating almost as if it were an independent republic by now. Come with us. You're well armed and it's fun. It's like a wedding. We drink, we eat, we play the violin, we dance, we are free. We do what we like. Those who need leather can have it and make themselves shoes. It's our right. We don't give a damn for the king, the queen, or the Fighting actually began in Montreal in November, when the Feast de la Liberté and the Doric Club rioted through the streets of Montreal. The Feast de la Liberté had been drilling openly in the town. One British officer claimed that the rebels drilled on our parade grounds and complained if interfered with, and the Dorics had vowed to nip the rebellion in the bud by stopping them if they tried to assemble again. On Monday, November 6th, they did assemble. At the appearance of the Feast de la Liberté in the Place des Armes, the Dorics made good their threat. And by the day's end, the windows of the Papineau's house had been broken, the offices of the Vindicator sacked, and several of the Patriots seriously injured. By now, the government was well aware of the danger it was in. The commander of the forces, Sir John Colborne, had warned the governor that Britain would lose the province unless prompt action was taken. On November 16th, warrants were issued for the arrest of the main Patriot leaders. But the Patriots' intelligence was good, and by then, most of them, like Thomas Doro Brown, had already left Montreal. In the city conflict of the 6th of November, 1837, I lost my right eye and got terribly beaten, which confined me to my room till the 16th, when I received information that a warrant against me for high treason had been issued, and in my ignorance of most that had been passing in the last ten days, I determined to set out immediately for the States, there to repose till my strength should be recovered. Departing alone, without conferring with anyone, 
I arrived at the horse ferry about five o'clock, but found it would not leave for a couple of hours, and then to carry troops, upon which, there being no other means of crossing, I engaged an habitant passing to Pointe-aux-Trembles to take me along with him. My new acquaintance was very drunk. A sharp snowstorm had set in. There was a continual danger of our running over the bank and into the river. Consequently, I was obliged to drive, which added to my exposure and struck a cold into my every limb and every corner of my body. The Patriot leaders made for the valley of the Richelieu, the center of their greatest strength south of the St. Lawrence. Brown went to Saint-Charles, where an armed camp was being established. Papineau and O'Callaghan to the home of Dr. Wolfred Nelson in Saint-Denis. What their precise plans were has been a hotly debated subject ever since. Was revolution planned, or did the people assemble at Saint-Charles and Saint-Denis in order to defend their leaders from arrest? The answer is probably both. Some had foreseen rebellion and welcomed it. Others were only gesturing at it in the hope of forcing the government to back down. Papineau certainly grew more ambivalent as the confrontation approached. He opposed the plans of those on the left of his party for social revolution, but it was becoming clear to him that he had lost control of events. Leadership had passed to the left and to the British military, which had decided on a preemptive attack. The British commander, Sir John Colborne, ordered his troops to march on Saint-Charles and Saint-Denis. Lieutenant Daniel Lysons was with the force bound for Saint-Denis. At 10 o'clock on the night of November 21st, the troops of Colonel Hughes's column turned out in the barrack square at Sorel. The rain was pouring down in torrents, and the night was dark as pitch. We were to move by the road called the Potter Burr Road in order to avoid passing through St. Urs, which was held by the rebels. I got a lantern, fastened it to the top of a pole, and had it carried in front of the column. But what with horses and men sinking in the mud, harness breaking, wading through water and winding through woods, the little force soon got separated. Towards morning, the rain changed into snow. It became very cold, and daybreak found the unfortunate column still floundering in the half-frozen mud four miles from St. Denis. At this point, they heard the bells of St. Denis and knew that the village was forewarned of their approach. When they entered the village, they were met by fire from well-fortified buildings. The Patriot had a strong position and the capable leadership of Dr. Wolfred Nelson, a man they knew and admired. The battle continued until late afternoon when the senior British officer, Colonel Gore, finally had to withdraw his exhausted troops. Six of his men were dead, 10 wounded, and six missing. The Patriot had equivalent losses, but they had won a stunning and unexpected victory. It was to be their only success. While Colonel Gore was attacking Saint-Denis, another British force was marching on Saint-Charles. Here the Patriot had confiscated the manor house of the Seigneur and were busy creating fortifications. Amongst them was Thomas Storrow Brown. On Monday, we felled the trees round the house and laid up their trunks as a barricade round our buildings. The people from the surrounding country came in great numbers, all enthusiastic and ready to devote life and property to the call of their country. All were ready to obey, but there was nobody to command. 
Brown himself eventually took the leadership. Strongly supported by Papineau and O'Callaghan, he was elected General of the Army of the South. But Brown, a Montreal hardware merchant, had no military experience and was unknown to most of his habitant fighters. He also had few arms. Of ammunition, we had some half-dozen kegs of gunpowder and a little lead, which was cast into bullets. But as the firearms were of every caliber, the cartridges made were too large for many, which were consequently useless. We had two small rusty field pieces, but with neither carriages nor appointments, they were as useless as two logs. There was one old musket, but not a bayonet. The firearms were common fusils in all conditions of dilapidation, some tied together with strings and very many with lock springs so worn out they couldn't be discharged. Despite this poor equipment, Brown seems to have been unreasonably confident. He refused an offer of reinforcements from Wolfred Nelson, who had proposed to send him 300 men and two field pieces from Saint-Denis, and a comparable offer from another Patriot chief. His optimism was unwarranted. When battle came on November 25th, he could muster less than 250 armed men against a force of over 400 better-armed British regulars. Nor did the Patriot have the same impregnable position at Saint-Charles which they had had at Saint-Denis. The result was a slaughter. The British commander counted 56 Patriot dead on the field of battle. Papineau, O'Callaghan, Brown, and Nelson all fled to the United States. Patriot resistance in the Richelieu Valley was broken. With the Richelieu Valley subdued, Sir John Colborne now took command himself and marched north at the head of 1,500 men against the Patriot encampments in the Lake of Two Mountains district. The result was the same as at Saint-Charles. The British forces engaged the Patriot in the village of Saint-Eustache on December the 14th. The rebels took their stand in the stone church at the center of the village and put up a fierce resistance. The bravery of their leader, Dr. Jean-Olivier Chenier, became a legend. But once the British had surrounded the village and set fire to the church, their position was hopeless. By the end of the four-hour battle, 70 patriots lay dead and 118 more men were prisoners. The British lost only two soldiers. By evening, the village was in flames. Sir George Bell was one of the British officers. The aftermath of the battle was too terrible to permit me, fagged as I was, to retire to my humble billet. I roamed round the burning village and heard the piercing cries of the wounded, many of them being burned alive. The soldiers were cutting down houses to prevent the fire from reaching the hospital. I found one fellow with his arms shattered above the elbow with grape shot. Some soldiers were going to dispatch him when I came up. He was crying for mercy and the blood was pouring from the wound most rapidly. I took off one of my moccasin strings and bound his arm tight, which stopped the effusion of blood. It was amputated the same night and I believe he recovered. Other prisoners I had difficulty saving from the soldiers who were much excited. With Santa Stache in ashes, the British forces moved on to the village of Saint-Benoît, the other Patriot stronghold in the district. But news of the slaughter at Santa Stache had preceded them, and they met no resistance. The leader of the Saint-Benoît Patriot, 
Jean-Joseph Giroir fled. His followers assembled in his courtyard, their arms grounded to await Colborne's arrival. Giroir later gave his version of what followed. It would be impossible for me to describe to you the desolation which his march and the barbarous scenes accompanying it spread through our homes. A considerable number of the inhabitants were assembled in my courtyard, which, as you know, is very large. They were lined up, and two cannon placed in the gateway were aimed at them while they were told that they would be exterminated in a few minutes. There are no insults and outrages which were not heaped upon them, no threats which were not made to intimidate them into declaring the hiding places of those who were called their leaders. Not one would give the least indication. Some officers, having learned that Paul Barazzo had guided me to Ebouli, tortured him to force him to tell my place of retreat. They put a pistol to his throat and several times placed him on a block threatening to behead him. But the generous patriot held his ground and the barbarian's violence was wasted. Thus began scenes of devastation and destruction more atrocious than any seen in a town taken by storm and given over to pillage after a long, hard siege. After completely pillaging the village, the enemy set fire to it and reduced it from one end to the other to a heap of ashes. They then went in different directions, ravaging and burning on their way, carrying their fire as far as the village of Saint Scholastic. The raising of the villages of Saint-Benoît and Saint-Eustache in the dead of winter resulted in terrible suffering. Many of the men were killed or imprisoned, the women and children left homeless. The Patriot leaders, meanwhile, were trying to regroup in the United States. They met in convention at Middlebury, Vermont on January the 2nd, 1838, and the left-right split, which had been latent throughout 1837, finally came out into the open. Dr. Cyril Cote and Robert Nelson emerged as the leaders of the liberal faction, which favored universal suffrage, abolition of the seigneurial system and the old French civil law, and an end to church privileges. Papineau, the seigneur, maintained his defense of the seigneurial system. He established himself at Albany, New York, and remained aloof from his former colleagues. Cote expressed his contempt in a letter to another exiled patriot. I do not know if you have had news from Albany. I can tell you for my part that I am utterly disgusted with that source. Our friend Dr. Nelson has been there and has not brought back very pleasant news. On the one hand, Metro Callan, wailing that all is lost and looking for work in a print shop. On the other, the great chief, pacing from one end of his room to the other, barely willing to receive Dr. Nelson, whereas many strangers are admitted to his company. Cote's attack on Papineau was echoed by Robert Nelson, who would eventually lead the Second Rebellion in November of 1838. 
Papineau has abandoned us for selfish and family motives regarding the seigneuries and his inveterate love of the old French laws. We can do better without him than with him. He's a man fit only for words and not for action. Hostility to Papineau gradually increased among the exiles. Some even began to blame him for the failure of the rebellion. He took no part in the plans being laid for further military action, and in February of 1839, he sailed from New York for Paris, where he remained until 1845. Meanwhile, Cote and Nelson and their allies tried to organize a second rebellion. Judging that their efforts in 1837 had been hampered by their having mobilized in full view of the government, they now created a secret society, Les Frères Chasseurs, the Brother Hunters. The Chasseur Lodges had a ritual worthy of the Masons, and a secret oath which the candidate for admission swore blindfolded on his knees with a pistol held to one side of his head and a dagger to the other. I solemnly swear in the presence of Almighty God to observe the secret signs and mysteries of the Society of Chasseurs, never to write, describe, or make known in any way the things which shall be revealed to me by the Society or Lodge of Chasseurs, to aid with my advice, care, and property every brother chasseur in need, and to notify him in time of any misfortune that may befall him. All this I promise without reservation, and consenting to see my property destroyed and to have my throat cut to the bone. The chasseurs were encouraged in their organizing efforts by the outcome of a celebrated trial which took place in Montreal in 1838. Four men were tried for the murder of a lapsed patriot turned government informer called Joseph Chartrand, whom they had executed in the parish of L'Acadie during the 1837 rebellion. Their lawyer, Charles Mondelet, argued that the authority of the government had virtually ceased to exist in Lacadie in 1837, and therefore the men charged were acting not as murderers, but as agents of a de facto government. The pro-British Montreal Herald described Mondelet's defense as the most extraordinary and seditious harangue ever heard within the walls of a temple of justice. But the all-French-Canadian jury acquitted the four men. Lord Durham, Gosford's replacement as governor-general, had already amnestied all the prisoners taken in 1837, with the exception of eight of the leaders who had been exiled to Bermuda. The combination of these events, says historian Murray Greenwood, gave a big boost to the chasseurs' organizing drive. Debutants were told by these uh, organizers that, hey, look, uh, Lord Durham's already amnestied almost everybody, and here you go, right? Even an atrocity case, uh, these guys aren't going to be punished. So, uh, rebellion, again, is costless. And I think this probably uh, encouraged a lot of habitants um, in the area of the Second Rebellion to rise again. The chasseurs were successful in mobilizing the habitants, but they had less luck in securing the support of the United States. There was plenty of sympathy for them in the northern states, but the American government preferred peaceful relations with Britain to an independent Canada. The governors of both New York and Vermont made proclamations pledging non-interference in Canadian affairs. And without a foreign ally, the Patriot were unlikely to succeed against the military might of Great Britain, which had been pouring fresh troops into the colony throughout 1838.
Sunday, November the 4th, 1838. Mass is being said in the Church of Notre Dame in Montreal. Outside, in the Place des Armes, British artillerymen have drawn up cannons and pointed them directly at the doors of the church. They are there to arrest prominent members of the congregation, like Louis-Hippolyte Lafontaine, future Prime Minister of the United Canadas, and Denis Benjamin Viget, who will also play a prominent political role in the 1840s. For the next year and a half, Viget will lie in prison, untried. They are being arrested on suspicion because a second rebellion has begun in the village of Napierville, near the American border. Eventually, something in the vicinity of 4,000 men will join Robert Nelson's standard. But in the end, the Second Rebellion will prove an anticlimax. As in 1837, the rebel forces are disorganized and poorly armed. Within a week, after only two small battles, they will have been decisively defeated. The Second Rebellion like the first, resulted in great suffering. Colonel Angus MacDonnell marched with the Highlanders of Glengarry County in Upper Canada. They swept down on the lower province, burning and pillaging as they went. We heard the wailing and lamentation of the women and children on beholding their homes in flames and their property destroyed, their husbands, fathers, sons and relations dragged along prisoners, saw women perishing in the snow, and children frozen stiff by their side or scattered in black spots upon the snow, half-grown children running frantic in the woods, frightened at the sight of friend or foe, and such of the habitants as did not appear, their houses were consigned to the flames as they were supposed to be rebels. The depredations of the Glengarrys were typical of the repression which followed the Second Rebellion. In areas where fighting had taken place, thousands of British troops were quartered on the local population. Beauharnois and Napierville suffered the fates of Saint-Benoît and Saint-Eustache. And in order to guard against a repetition of the Chartrand trial, 108 of the leaders were tried by general court-martial. From their prison in Montreal, they could see the construction of a special multiple gallows in front of the jail. During the court-martial, their right to defend themselves was so severely limited that historian Murray Greenwood, who has studied the trial, believes that there were 20 serious miscarriages of justice. François-Xavier Prieur was one of those tried. During these long days of our trial, the abuse and insults leveled at us did not diminish on the part of the rabble which crowded round us on our passage and invaded the approaches to the court. Some of our judges, even, did not spare us gross insults. Some of them also amused themselves during the sittings, sketching little figures hanging from gibbets, and the coarse caricatures which they passed to one another before our gaze appeared to amuse them greatly. Prieur and 98 others were condemned to death. Later, his sentence was commuted to transportation to a penal colony in Van Diemen's land. Twelve men were finally hanged on the new gallows. One of them was the Chevalier de Lorimier. He used his last moments to compose an address to his countrymen. 
I die without remorse. All that I desired was the good of my country, in insurrection and in independence. For 17 to 18 years, I have taken an active part in almost every popular movement, always with conviction and sincerity. My efforts have been for the independence of my compatriots. Thus far, we have been unfortunate. But the wounds of my country will heal. The peace-loving Canadian will see liberty and happiness born anew on the Saint-Laurent. To you, my compatriots, my execution and that of my comrades on the scaffold will be of use. I have only a few hours to live, and I have sought to divide them between my duty to religion and that due to my compatriots. For them, I die on the gallows, the infamous death of murderer, for them, I leave behind my young children and my wife, alone. For them, I die with the cry on my lips, Vive la liberté! Vive l'indépendance! Not long after the hangings, 58 more prisoners were sent off to exile and hard labor in the prison camps of Van Diemen's Land. For Maurice Lepailleur and the others, it would be a long time before they would see their homes and families again. After a long and painful imprisonment of 11 months, after having had all my property burned and destroyed, and the most extreme misery brought upon my children, the enemies of my country have separated me from them, perhaps forever. They have exiled me. Adieu, Canada. I leave a wife in tears, children too young to remember their father. My countrymen protect the defenseless. Protect and give unto them, and heaven will reward you. Adieu. In 1840, the Imperial Parliament, following the recommendations of Lord Durham, did what the British merchants had wanted since 1791, united the provinces of Upper and Lower Canada with the aim of assimilating the French. The French Canadians felt deeply betrayed. The promise extended to them in the Quebec Act of 1774 that their religion, their language, and their laws would be protected had been violated. But things didn't work out as planned, and 11 years after the last shots of the rebellion were fired, it was the British who were burning down the Parliament buildings and rioting through the streets of Montreal. The former Patriot had made an alliance with the reformers of Upper Canada and eventually won responsible government from the British. By 1854, with the abolition of seigneurial tenure, they had accomplished in Parliament most of the program which had driven them to rebellion in 1837. But they had done it in a society that remained colonial and conservative, 
much of what the patriot had stood for, independence, anti-clericalism, American-style democracy, was burned out of Quebec society virtually until the 1960s. The terror which followed the rebellions had its effect, and it left deep and lasting scars. This has been Ideas on the Rebellions of 1837, written and presented by David Cayley. Heard in tonight's program were Albert Miller as Louis-Joseph Papineau, with other voices by Dennis O'Connor, François Clanfer, and Richard Partington. We'd like to thank historians Phil Buckner, Murray Greenwood, Alan Greer, Jacques Monette, Fernand Ouellette, Stanley Ryerson, Eleanor Senior, and Jean-Pierre Wallot for their generous help in the production of this series. Music in tonight's program was arranged and performed by Ian Bell and Anne Lederman of Muddy York. Production was by Bernie Lucht, with the assistance of Larry Clayton, Lorne Tulk, Glenn McLaughlin, Bill Robinson, and Anton Zabo. You can get a printed transcript of this four-part series. The whole thing costs $5. Just send a check or money order to CBC Enterprises, 1837, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Tomorrow on Morningside, listen for another episode of The Reluctant Patriot, the continuing story of Samuel Chandler, an upper Canadian patriot condemned to exile in Van Diemen's land. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Good night. Good night.